Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. If you are new here in the past month or so, we are actually studying the book of Acts. We've been making our way through it for quite some time. We're halfway through the book. And, uh, and we are now at a great section here in Acts chapter 15. So I would ask you to turn to Acts chapter 15 this morning. And uh, we are going to pick up where we left off. And I'll set the table because it's been a little while since we've been in Acts. But uh, it's uh, a wonderful study. And, uh, and I'm excited to jump back into it today. We'll be looking at uh, what has been known as the Jerusalem Council, a name we've kind of added to this. But I like to actually call this section, What Do You Do When Pagans Convert? And that's really what this section is about, and, and we're going to be looking at it here this morning. And, uh, but before we do, I would like to just open our time in a word of prayer, so would you just join me in prayer here this morning? Father God, now we have just had an incredible time to reflect on the cross of Jesus and, and uh, to be reminded of the, uh, the fact we have been bought with a price and be reminded of your grace and your mercy. It's not by anything that we have done, no list of works that we have ever pursued, but it is by your righteousness and your grace, your mercy. Lord, let that wash over us. Let that humble us. Let that just cause us to stand in awe of you and not in awe of ourselves. Thank you, God, that we get to be in your word and get to study this morning. And God, I just pray that this time here would genuinely and truly be uh, a study that grips us and changes us. It conforms us to the image of your Son. May it fill us with love for you and love for others. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to begin by telling you a story. I am making this story up. There is no truth to the story at all. Okay, this is completely fabricated in my brain, and I have created this scenario only for this sermon. So there is no situation. This doesn't resemble anything in real life. Okay, got that? These are the the ground rules of this story. I'm completely making this story up, but I want to make it up for a reason because I think it will set the table for uh, where we're jumping back into in Acts. Because okay, we're, we're studying Acts, and it's been a while, and, and I want to kind of get us set up for what's going on here uh, by this story. So here's the story I want you to picture. I want you to picture a church, a small church, conservative town, conservative church, you know, a church that preaches the word and, uh, and, and is, uh, uh, you know, kind of had a history of being true to the scriptures, true to the word of God, and, uh, and in a kind of very conservative setting. I want you to picture a particular Sunday in that church. Uh, a gentleman walks into the church, and the gentleman that walks in is one of the worst criminals in that entire state where that church is located. This gentleman was actually convicted of all kinds of heinous crimes and, and then uh, served his time in, in jail, but then got out of jail on some kind of technicality. And, and everybody sees this guy as being the most heinous criminal ever. He comes in having you know, sold drugs to nine-year-olds. Whatever you could think about as being bad and heinous, this guy has done. Okay, Just a, a, the type of guy that you know, 
put security guards in the nursery, he's just walked in kind of guy, okay? So this guy walks into the church, and the people of the church are actually happy. Wow, hey, look, the worst criminal in the world has come to church. And he sits himself in the front row, and he hears the sermon, and boom, he gets saved on that Sunday. Now everybody's rejoicing, right? I mean, this church isn't a bad church. They're happy about this. And so the man goes to the pastor afterwards and says, man, I believe in Jesus. This, you know. now, now, mind you, he's done. His whole life has been horrible life. And in his home, he's got all kinds of horrible things, and he's got horrible friends. And, right, but yet he has come at this moment. He said, man, I, I believe. And, and everybody's rejoicing. And then the man says, hey, I am so excited about this that I want to sing in the choir next week. And now there's a moment of pause. Huh. Do we let the worst criminal in the history of our state sing in the choir a Sunday after he gets saved? I mean, what would happen if people walked in and they saw this guy sitting up there and they didn't even know he was saved? Right? Somebody from the community walks in and goes, what kind of church is this? This is the worst criminal in the world. We've seen this guy. We followed his case. We saw him in the newspapers. Yeah, how can he? Right? And so the pastor realizes, wow, he just asked this question. You know, third of the church heard the question. They're all looking at the pastor he's going to answer. And he realizes, wow, I'm going to say nothing. Okay, let's just, well, that's a great question. I'll get back to you on it. Right? Pastor answers diplomatically. And, uh, and they, they call a church meeting. And they say, what should we do? Do we let the guy sing in the choir or not? portion of the church says, yes, he's saved. He should proclaim Jesus. The other half says, nah, yeah, but what about how this might look? And maybe we should be helping him do other things than sing in the choir. Maybe he should have some discipleship. I mean, think about it. You know, who knows? I mean, he just placed his faith in Jesus. He doesn't understand things. He's, you know, he's, maybe we shouldn't put him up front yet. And so this debate kind of rages on. Now, Here's the good news. This is a made-up story, which means it has no ending to it, okay? And so you're kind of left. It's postmodern. You can make it whatever you want, right? You know, <laughs> end, the plan, end the story however you want to end it. The reason why I'm telling you this story is because that tension, and you might think, is that a real tension? You know, no, I made up the story. But, 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 but I wanted to surface this because this is what's happening to a certain degree in Acts 15, we have been following the expansion of the gospel from a Jewish world to a Samaritan world and now out to the Gentiles, out to the pagans, we'll call them, the people who are living the raucous lifestyles. The Jewish people, their, their, their worship system is based on two things, a belief, a certain set of doctrines, and a certain set of practices, things they do not do, things that are offensive to them. These practices are really important to them. As the gospel's going out, it's going out to people who do not honor those practices, who do not see those practices being valid. They are living a lifestyle that is way outside of those practices. They are placing their faith in Jesus. And Paul is saying, welcome in. You're all in, baby. Come on in. And there are some people going, yeah, but that makes me uncomfortable. Because, you see, they're still going home to their three wives, and they're still eating anim uh, animals, meat that they purchased at the 
temple and they're drinking blood and they're doing all kinds of crazy things and, and because they got multiple wives, I don't know about all this. I'd like to sort through some of those practices before we start giving these people a seat at the table. And this now has created a tension. What do you do when somebody who lives way outside the box gets saved? That's the tension. Acts 15 resolves it. So, I misled you because I said there's no answer to the story, resolution to that story. There is no resolution to the story I made up because I didn't end it, but the resolution is found in the text. That's what Acts 15 is about. It's tackling this issue as evangelism goes out, it starts bringing people in from way outside in the margins, and now what is the responsibility of the Christian to the person who has come in from the margins? And what is the responsibility of the person to the established Christians? We could put it in context here. The Jewish believers have a responsibility to these Gentile believers, but the Gentile believers also have a responsibility to the Jewish believers. So it isn't just that you say, hey, well, yeah, come on in. It's by grace. Do whatever you want. There is something we're going to ask of the person who placed their faith in Jesus, just as much as there's something we're going to ask from the established believers in terms of how they treat the person from the margins. That's what we're going to see today, and I think this is going to help us with a tension that we have. A tension. We don't specifically have the tension of the Jewish context, the Jewish-Gentile context, but we do have the tension between the truth of what we believe, the practices that we hold to, and the fact that not everybody adheres to the same set of practices. How do we respond to that? What are we asking from people? And we're going to see the answer right here in Acts 15. I think it will be very helpful. So, We're going to begin by looking at something because the very first point here you can see is the truth challenge. And the reason why I call it the truth challenge is whenever you face this moment of tension, it'd be very easy to lose sight of the gospel. It'd be very easy for the Jewish believers to say to the Gentile believers, man, your practices are all bad. And so therefore, I don't even know if I can call you a Christian yet until I see whether or not those practices have changed. It'd be very easy for us even to feel that way. Somebody comes in from the margins, they come in from a, a, a lifestyle that we would say, wow, I, I don't know about that lifestyle. You know, I know they say they believe in Jesus, but let's just see if some changes take place. Then I'll say yes. I'm not confident. It's very easy to kind of lose, to, to allow that spirit to take over. And then what tends to happen is we can quickly lose the gospel. And that's what's going on here. The very first thing that happens is the truth gets challenged. So then it needs to be defended, it needs to be defined, and it needs to be applied. And that's what we're going to see here today. But let's look at how the truth gets challenged. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So let me dump you into where we are in the storyline. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was sent out in Acts 13. He and Barnabas were sent out to... uh, to be missionaries to southern Turkey. So they went out to southern Turkey, went on a five-year evangelistic uh, work where they established churches, and, 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 and now they're making their way back to Antioch. They're in a place, Antioch, which is today, to put it in a modern context, it's Syria. They're in Syria. And so they've made their way from southern Turkey back to Syria. 
They have, it's Paul, it's Barnabas, probably Timothy is with them, and there's probably a few other believers, as the story unfolds, a few other believers that, that, that from southern Turkey that have come with him. They're making their presentation to the, to the church in Antioch that sent them out. As they're making their presentation, it says some men came down from Judea. Judea is the southern region. It's where Jerusalem is. Some men came down from Judea teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's what you've got. Paul and Barnabas are sharing what's going on. they got a group of these uh, you know, believers from Turkey, from the Galatia region. And, uh, and, and with them, these guys from Jerusalem came up and said, hey, guess what? you got to get circumcised or you're not saved. And you say, what? Why, why would they say that? Well, you know, the Old Testament clearly teaches that if you want to connect yourself to God, when God was establishing Israel, he established a practice. And that practice said, if you want to be connected, if you want to be a child of the covenant, you'll get circumcised. That is your union with God. So every male member of your household is going to get circumcised. And that means that household now is aligned with the law of God and say, we will follow the law of God. So these guys came down and they said, hey, uh, yeah, you have your faith in Jesus. That's awesome. It's great, wonderful. But here's the problem. You're not saved yet because you're still pagan. You're still living in these pagan practices. You've got to align yourself with God's law, which means there's certain foods you can't eat. There's certain things you can't do. And so what you have to do is take the sign that you're going to follow the law of God and get circumcised. If you don't, no salvation. You're not saved. Your faith means nothing. Now, you can see why they would say this purely on an outside level because when you look at the situation, uh, these guys were pagan people. I mean, picture a guy walking into gathering and he's got three wives and doing all kinds of drugs and getting involved with all kinds of ritualistic things and living as you know, wild life. And people are going, wait a minute, you can't do this stuff. God hates this stuff that you're doing. So I know you've trusted Jesus, but God hates this stuff. And if you don't stop this stuff, you're not saved. So you can get the emotion behind that. You know, I can, I can, I can, I can understand that emotion. And so it's being challenged. It's very interesting because what they're trying to do is create a line of separation based upon a set of practices. And that line of separation is, is, a, is a strong line. Okay? So, Paul now needs to defend the truth. So there's our second point. We're going to see how the truth gets defended. Okay? Verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That's a very diplomatic way, right? <laughs> Describing that. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles brought and, and brought great joy to all the brothers. Okay, so here's what's happening. They are debating. This is a huge argument. Now I want to show you how big this argument is. Luke just kind of summarizes it, right? After no small dissension, right? Basically saying, this was huge. No one knew what to do because on the one hand, you can make the point 
that you don't want the person to continue on in their sexual immorality. You don't want them to continue on in their pagan practices, right? You want that to stop. Placing your faith in Jesus shouldn't mean that you get to live this crazy lifestyle. But on the other hand, do you say that until you stop it, you're not saved, right? So you can see the tension that's here. It's a tension between truth and practices. How, How do we resolve this? So they're debating this issue. Now, I want to show you how big of a debate this was. This was a huge debate. In the book of Galatians, Paul describes what happened at this moment in Antioch. He actually describes it. He goes into greater detail. He's writing a letter to the church in Galatia because these particular people who went up to Antioch to go meet him up there, they continued on and went into Galatia. And Paul now has to write a letter to stop these guys. These guys, are not, these guys aren't stopping. And Paul describes what happens in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I'll read it. You can turn there if you want or you can just listen. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. It says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, when Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, describing this moment, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That situation in Galatians happened at this moment. That's what's going on. These guys came down. Peter had come down first. We, we kind of gleaned from the text. He's hanging out with these Gentiles that have come from Turkey. And he's going, man, this is great. He's having dinner with them. He's going out with them. He's hanging out. And then this people came down and they said, hey, these guys are pagan, man. They got to stop being pagan. We can't call them Christians yet. And Peter withdraws. Ooh, he gets afraid of these guys, the circumcision party. And then Barnabas starts to withdraw. And Paul starts going, hold on a minute, guys. You guys, aren't, you guys are withdrawing because you're afraid of them, when in reality you were just eating with them days ago. How could you do this? You know what the truth is. How can you put this burden back on them? He just, Paul just like, boom, stands there. This is what's going on in that debate. That's unpacking a little bit of Acts for you to let you see this is how tense this is. It's so much so that it's impacting Barnabas. It's impacting Peter. So they say, we got to send these guys away. They got to go. We got to have a meeting with the elders and the apostles. And someone's got to draw a line in the sand, figure out what the, where the truth is. So they, of course, go on their way. And they're, they're in the Samaritan villages telling them all about what's happened. The Samaritan, on their way from Antioch. And the Samaritans are getting pumped about the stories of faith. And notice verse 4 what happens. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. That's an important little verse there. Can't really let that one pass you by. And the reason why is this. Very simple practice in the early church. If somebody really was a heretic, they separated from them. When something was deemed, this is heretical, they would just say, we, have, we will not accept you. Like, we draw a line in the sand. We don't try to win you. We actually pull away from you when you're heretical. And so this is, Luke is saying, when they came, the church did welcome them. So Paul's teaching was not considered heretical. He was accepted. The church accepted him. The elders accepted him. They shared all the things that God had done. 
And so they are being accepted as brothers. Okay? That's just a little sign there for those who understand the, the context of the situation that, that Paul's not on the outside at this point. He's still within the inside. But then notice, these circumcision guys are getting a little ramped up here. Notice verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So now they ramp it up a little more. Not only have they, they have to get circumcised, they now have to follow all 600 laws. And if they don't follow all 600 laws, no part. No part. So now they've, they've added to this. They have got to conform to these, to these, to these principles here. And so verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. Okay, so now Paul is defending this truth. But now the apostles are there. The elders of the church in Jerusalem are there. Possibly some of the elders from Antioch are there. You got a big meeting. They're going to take tackle this issue. What do you do? What do you do? How do you handle the issue of the moral code of God along the truth of the gospel that you are justified by grace through faith. How do you reconcile these two things? So now, we're going to see the truth defined and applied. Two people respond in this council, Peter and James. The first response is Peter. Okay, look at verse 7. And after there had been much debate, just stop for a moment, I want you to catch, they are really trying to work this thing out. They are not just trying to say, it's all gospel, throw out all the moral principles. They're not saying, it's all moral principles, throw out the gospel. They're trying to figure out, there is a moral side to God, there's a set of practices that God loves, and there is a truth of justification by grace through faith. How do these two things go together? How do we connect them? And they are debating this issue. It is, it's a tough one. But Peter, he stood up. And Peter gives five, he gives a five-point outline, five-point sermon. His first point is right here, you can see it. And the first point in his response is, it is God's will that the Gentiles be saved. That's the first thing that he says. Okay, look at verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles shall hear the word of the gospel and believe. In Acts 10, Peter was called to go bring the gospel to a Gentile. God made it clear that he was saving Gentiles. That they're not an afterthought. They're not an add-on. The whole point isn't Israel and the laws of Israel, and that's all there is, and a few little Gentiles can sprinkle in if they want to. This is God's plan that the nations come. It's his plan. This is, this is in the mind of God, and he's saying, guys, as an apostle, you know that God spoke to me and told me Gentiles are to be saved. Okay, so that's the first point. So meaning this, God knows that these really far-off, immoral people are coming in. He knows this. God's not blind. God's not going, ooh, I didn't think he'd get saved, right? God's not doing that, right? God knows, fully aware of what's happening. Second point, this is key right here. The Gentiles are affirmed by God's Spirit. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Here's the key. When I evaluate somebody, he's saying, I'm not evaluating them based upon whether or not they conformed morally to the law at first. 
I'm looking to see is whether or not the Spirit of God has come upon them. And when I preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the, the same thing that happened to us at Pentecost happened to them. The same Spirit comes upon them. If we want to apply that to us today, when I look at somebody, what I should be looking for is Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Right? Is there self-control? Is, is this stuff coming out of the person's life? Or do I see anger and, and backbiting and bitterness and all the deeds of the flesh that he lists? If I look at the person and I see that, it doesn't matter how moral they are. The point of evaluation is the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God upon them. So he says, listen, they got the same Spirit as we did. So it was God's will they be saved. They're affirmed by the presence of the Spirit. That's it. That's how they're affirmed. I'm affirming them because the Spirit came upon them. Not because they ate ate a hamburger that was sacrificed to an idol. Not evaluating them that way. Then the third thing he says. The Gentiles are cleansed by faith. Verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Basically, simple point. Our hearts were never cleansed by the law. Our hearts were cleansed by faith. We trusted in Jesus, and it was his righteousness that was given to us. They trust in Jesus. Christ's righteousness is given to them. That's all it is. There is no righteousness any other way other than by faith. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're a moral person or an immoral person, right? Whether you were raised and you never did anything externally wrong, You always obeyed your parents. You always did everything right. You never cheated on a test. You always said, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You did everything right. Whether you're that way or whether you did everything wrong and blew up your home, you know, you're still saved by faith. Both are saved by faith is what he's saying. And so this is how you're cleansed then. My heart is cleansed not by the works I do, but by the work of Jesus is what he's saying. Okay? So, he says, listen, it's God's will that they be saved. The mark of evaluation is the Holy Spirit. They're cleansed by faith. Then this fourth point, the Gentiles are not cleansed by the law. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He's saying this. Think about your life before Jesus. What did the law do to you? The law didn't make you righteous. It just convicted you of every single thing you did wrong all the time. And we walked around with that yoke on, and why are you now going to put it on them? God saved them by grace through faith, saved them through the death of Jesus on the cross, and then you're going to test God and say, well, you know, God, that's actually not sufficient. I mean, the cross is good, it's important, but there's a few things else we've got to add to that. Just, man, that is arrogant. Why are you putting God to the test? You're not cleansed by the law. So then, so he says, okay, it's God's will that the Gentiles be saved, God's spirit is a sign of their salvation. Faith is what cleanses them. No one is cleansed by the law. So then he gets to his fifth point. The Gentiles are saved by grace. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through grace, the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now I want you to notice the way uh, Peter worded that. He says, notice this is he words it backwards. You would think he would say that they are saved the same way we are. Gentiles are saved the same way Jews are. He stands up in front of all these Jews, especially these circumcision guys, the Pharisee guys, and he says, do you realize something? We Jews will be saved the same way the Gentiles will be saved. He elevates them. He elevates them. He's humbling these guys. 
We're saved the same way they are. How is it? By grace. That is it. It is amazing how arrogant we can become when we get judgmental over people. They're this, they do this, they do that. I don't do that. I would never do that, right? He's like, stop doing that. It is by grace. No one deserves it. You are saved by grace the same way they're saved by grace. You're in the same need of salvation as they are. And then notice what happens after Peter gives his five-point sermon. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. Right? I mean, this is a powerful sermon. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They start talking about, guys, this is true. We preached Christ and they trusted Christ and this happened and that happened. And they're, and they're getting evidence, the living proof that this is true. Okay, but there's a second person who speaks in this. Okay, that's Peter. Now we have James. James is going to stand up and James is going to be the pastor now. Peter just stands up, kind of says it like it is, gives his five points. James has two points. His first point is he's going to give the scriptural truth, the scriptural backing behind this. And then James is going to apply it. And it's in that application that we solve the problem of my opening story. Okay, so this application is important. First, though, James gives the scriptural evidence. Look at verse 13. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now, He's quoting from Amos 9. Here's what he does in Amos 9. You've got to understand the book of Amos. So I'll give you a slight summary of the book of Amos. Book of Amos, God is speaking to the Israelites. The Israelites are doing all kinds of, they're very faithful in their worship to God in Amos. They're going to the temple, they're worshiping, they're sacrificing, they're singing all the songs, they're doing all the stuff, but their heart is far from God. In their heart they are angry, they are bitter, they are they, they, they don't love each other. They're not showing mercy and compassion to people. They are standing in judgment of people to such a degree that they've drawn lines. And they say, you know, you're this and you're that. And so the book of Amos, God is saying, I hate your worship. I hate it when you come. I hate it when you sacrifice. I hate it when you sing. He actually says that in chapter 5. I hate it because you don't love justice. You don't love righteousness. You don't love mercy. You don't love compassion. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wipe you out for this. Right? God is just mad. And he says, I am bringing judgment. But that's not the end of the story. I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to bring you back. And when I bring you back, this incredible thing is going to happen. I'm not only going to bring you back. I'm going to bring the nations back. And so when you get restored, the world's getting restored. The whole world. All the nations are going to come in. And so when I bring the restoration to Israel, know this, I'm not just bringing it to you. I'm bringing it to the nations, and the nations are going to gather. That's what Amos chapter 9 says. That's, that's, that, so James is quoting, obviously, the perfect prophetic book. Guys, this is where we're at. The Messiah has come. 
The restoration has come. But remember what the prophet Amos says. When the restoration comes, it's not just for Israel. It's for the nations. They're supposed to come in. So obviously they're supposed to be here. Obviously this is okay that these pagans are here. But how do you apply it? Okay, so now this takes us to the application. How do you apply this moment? Here's the application. He applies it first to the Jewish Christians and then second to the Gentile Christians. Two applications. Because there's a responsibility in both directions. Here's the application to the Jews, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. That's it. That's your application. Guys, quit putting the law on them. Stop it. It's that simple. Our response is that we have to accept their faith as being enough. And so when they come in, and they come in with their wives, and they come in with their practices, and they come in eating the pork they purchased at the idol store, and all of this stuff, and they're eating it in your gathering, you cannot say, how can that person call himself a Christian? How can that person say he's with God? Look at what he's doing. He's saying, the application to you is, stop it. Don't do that anymore. Don't trouble them. But is that the end of the story? Right? Is it going to be a giant idol fest? All right, come on in. Everybody gets to drink the blood. Everybody gets to eat the stuff. And if this is bothering your conscience, it doesn't matter. Grace is enough. And if you have your conscience is bothered, forget you. Is that what's supposed to be happening here? No. Now he applies it to the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles have a responsibility here. They have a responsibility. Look at verse 20. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Now let me explain to you this answer. This is the part of the story when people study it, they go, why in the world did he say that? What is he saying there? It seems like they went through this whole big thing to say it's by faith, it's by faith, and then Peter says, and then James says, oh, and by the way, you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and you can't drink blood, and you can't eat non-kosher meat, and, you know, wait a minute, is he contradicting himself? He's not. I want you to notice the rationale he gives. Do you remember grammatically, here's our little grammar lesson. It's very important that, that you observe some words in when you're studying your Bible, and there's a word you need to study, and it's the word for. Important word. For is usually giving you a rationale, a reason behind something. So in verse 20, he states, but we need to tell these Gentiles, I don't want you eating meat, sacrifice to idols. you got to abstain from sexual immorality. What does he mean by that? Well, a lot of these people have, you know, unique home lives. <laughs> and, and they have to say, hey, you need to back off from that. I don't know how to solve the problem if you have three wives, but, but I do know one thing, you're going to have to stop what you were doing. Okay, you got to stop that. You got to stop eating non-kosher meat and stop drinking blood. They would put blood in their soups to flavor their soups and things like that. Okay, can't do that. Now, he's not saying, because if you don't, you're not a Christian. Notice the four in verse 21. You see it there? Four. Now here's the reason why I'm telling you to do this. 
And I'll summarize verse 21. Because Gentiles, you are surrounded by Jews. And this will bother their conscience. And for the sake of their conscience, stop it. The ultimate freedom is to not use your freedom, right? Now you're really free, right? The worst kind of freedom is to say, I am free, therefore I must exercise my freedom. Or you'll take it away. The ultimate freedom is to say, I don't even need to use it. It is true that they can eat the meat sacrificed to an idol. They're free to do that. But their freedom hasn't been given to them to use it for themselves. Paul, in the book of Galatians, who needs to take the teaching, the book of Galatians is taking Acts 15 and applying it. It's all centered. They're all together. Galatians and this whole story are intertwined. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, You were called to freedom, brethren, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You haven't been set free so that you can eat meat. You've been set free so you can serve. You haven't been set free so you can drink the blood. You've been set free so you can serve. Now realize this, Gentiles, right? If James were standing before these people in Galatia, he would say, listen, you are surrounded by Jews who are reading the book of Moses every Saturday. And when they read through all these laws, they're reading, do not eat things, sacrifice to idols, do not drink blood, do not, do, you know, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. And when they walk out and they see you standing there eating pork going, hey, isn't Jesus cool? They're freaking out. So stop it. Put it down. Freedom is best seen when you don't use your freedom. There's freedom. Now you're really free. There it is. Here's the thing. I would summarize James's word this way. Remember, grace has set you free from being a slave to sin, but it has never set you free from being a slave to love. It has never set you free from being a slave to love. You're a slave to love. So, in this context, set it aside. So let's cycle back to our story at the very beginning. You might say to this person, hey, listen, you want to sing in the choir? That's wonderful. But I want you to know a couple things. You are surrounded by people who are seriously offended by your lifestyle that you had before you were in Christ. They are so bothered by your lifestyle that it you know, gives a few twitches, okay? Because they weren't raised this way, and this pushes them outside of their comfort zones. What I want to ask you to do, what I want to ask you to do is give up these practices that you have. I might be asking you to stop watching the movies you watch. I might be asking you to stop because you're probably way further down the road uh, in terms of your entertainment level. But I'm asking you not to do this because this will make God happy. I'm asking, you know, and, and then you'll be saved. I'm asking you to do this because you as a believer owe love to the believers that you're in, in fellowship with. You as a believer owe love to them. You are responsible to love them and to serve them and to care for them and to set aside those, those, those freedoms that you have. And as we nurture you in your walk with God, I'm just asking you that when you, when you stand up and, and, and minister to the flock, that you do it out of a heart of a love and not out of a heart of I have the right to be this way. That you do it out of a heart of love. 
That would be the solution. So let me sum this up here for us. Let's kind of land the plane. One of the things that, that I kind of wrote down in my notes here was that this is really helpful to help us understand how to deal with people, how to deal with the messiness of evangelism, how to deal with it when people from the world come in, how to deal with it when we have differences. And, and, and I want to give you four responses or four lessons that I've learned. And, uh, and, and, and these four lessons are, are things that you know, minister to me that I kind of been leaning on uh, in my own life. And the first one is, is a lesson of evaluation, a lesson of evaluation. And it's this. The Spirit of God is the mark of the believer. That's the mark of the believer. I don't want to make the mark of the believer my moral preferences or my moral maturity. Maybe God has matured me to the point where there are things in my life I would, I would never consider doing, and, and you would look at that and say, that's a sign of moral maturity. You've grown. God, God doesn't like the sins of you know, sexual morality and things like that that are mentioned. He hates that stuff. He's patient, and he'll work with people. He'll be gracious. But one of the things I don't want to do is use my standard of walk and how I'm going to evaluate you. What I want to be looking at is, is the Spirit of God present? Is God's Spirit there? Do I see it in the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness? Do I see the fruit emerging from that person? And, and that's going to be the point of evaluation, not the moral code. Second one. Okay, so that's an evaluation. The second one is, is how do I view others or how do I even engage others and help others that not view others but engage others and help others how do I do that well the second lesson then is faith is what unites us to our cleansing and so what I want to do is when I see somebody who may be immature in the faith is that I want to keep bringing them to Jesus because he's their cleanse right isn't he isn't he what cleanses them he's the one that's going to cleanse them and so I don't want to just introduce them to my moral code I want to introduce them to Jesus and I want to be Christ-centered and I want to recognize that as, as they trust Christ and the Spirit convicts them and they re- respond to the Spirit, that this is the cleansing process. Because faith is what the cleansing process is. So how do I build your faith? How do I keep your picture of Jesus so big and build your faith up so that, so that you will be cleansed? Right? Because I don't want to do it by the works of the law. Third, how do I view myself in this process? Well, third point is, grace is the heart of salvation. I've been saved by grace. I might not have a resume like some people in the world, right? Or people who have worse fleshly resumes than I do as far as external things. But I can't stand there in judgment of others, or even if I see somebody who's in a really bad place, and stand there and just start casting stones. But it's easy to do that. It really is. It's easy to cast stones. I don't want to do that. I want to recognize I'm standing in grace. They're standing in grace. We're all standing in grace. And I need to recognize that about me. The moment I start comparing myself to other people, what happens? I'll always win. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm very biased. right? And so I want to stand in grace when I view myself because grace is the heart of salvation. Salvation is the fruit of the kindness of the Lord. It is not the fruit of the work of man. Fourth, what is my responsibility then? My responsibility to others is this. We are no longer slaves of law, but we're slaves of love. I owe love. I owe the 
the sense of, of recognizing that, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, love's going to cover a multitude of sins. Love is patient. Love is kind. If I have all the truth of the world, but I don't have love, I'm noise. If I have all the understanding of, of, of everything in the world, all the spiritual qualities of the world, but I don't have love, I'm worthless. Right? If I, if I am the most you know, giving person in the world, but yet I don't have love, it's meaningless in the, in the economy of God. That's what Paul says. This is it. This is what we owe people is love. And that's our responsibility. And that's the responsibility of the person who gets saved today that we would call them to say, listen, for the sake of love, I'm going to ask you to surrender that, not for your salvation, but because it bothers the conscience of someone else. And I would say to the person who's more mature or, or kind of steeped in a particular tradition, hey, for the sake of the gospel and the love of the gospel, please don't put more on the person than faith in Christ. And now together in love, we can serve and build up the faith. So, I think if we live by these understandings, which is what the point of this was, the church was saying, guide us through this, help us navigate through these waters. That's what this text has done. And I think it helps us. So why don't we just pray? Pray to that end. Uh, I think there's a lot in here and, and a lot's been covered, but let's just pray that these truths would be known to us in our heart and life. Join me in prayer. Father, it's a big text, but an important one. Lord, you guided the church as to how to understand others through looking for the work of the Spirit. You guided the text and how we help others become mature by keeping people focused on Christ. You guided the church in understanding ourselves that grace is the heart of it. Even for us, we stand in grace. And you guided the church to know what our responsibility is, that we owe love. We don't want to violate the gospel, and we don't want to violate people's consciences. And, uh, and Lord, taught us these things. Lord, they're hard for us. They're not easy. But God, may we live by them. May this mark us as your people. By your grace and in your mercy. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.